Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Mads Christensen. Mads is a principal program manager on the Visual Studio team and has published over 150 free Visual Studio extensions. He blogs about anything related to Visual Studio and extensibility and is a home automation enthusiast. Welcome, Mads. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, guys. So uh, before we jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a little bit more of an introduction to yourself, uh, you know, perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been in the industry since I left uh, sort of school, which was in 2001 or two, <clears throat> I think. Uh, and um, the reason I kind of chose this industry was actually... Uh, through backroads because I thought I was going to be in finance. I, that was what I want to do. I, I went to, you know, trade school for finance and um, and economics and that sort of stuff. And I got a trainee position at a company, and I was doing all sorts of like sales and um, different functions, sort of around running a business. And I was starting doing my MBAs at night. And while I was doing that and working at this at this company, I started working with Excel and you know making spreadsheets. And then making formulas and then like really diving deep into formulas in Excel. Then macros. That's Visual Basic, right? Then more Visual Basic, more and more. I'm like, hey, this is really fun. So then I started building some websites <clears throat> in in Publisher, Microsoft Publisher. Uh, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's like, hey, what if I marry this uh, Visual Basic thing I did with that? that that's ASP. At that, at that point in time, that was ASP. So I started... Um, doing that. And at that point I was like, okay, this is much more fun than any finance stuff I've ever looked at. So I basically canceled out on my MBA uh, evening studies and uh, went back to school for a couple of years for, uh, to get a multimedia degree, which is kind of a, just a two year associate's uh, degree. And then I got a job immediately after that, which was sort of doing the, uh, the big uh, dot com crash, right? The first bubble. And so I was kind of lucky that I was able to get a job uh, just out of the gate and um, as web developer and uh, building websites, just uh, basically spitting them out for uh, small clients. Um, and did that for a couple of years in like a small little startup. Moved to a bigger startup uh, where we did like big analytics solutions, still with a focus on web, but doing a lot of the backend stuff as well, SQL Server, uh, you know, databases and, um, and, and much more sort of advanced behind the scenes stuff as well as the web front end. And then I moved to a different startup doing like explicitly web front end. And I became the team lead of the front end team and did that for several years. And in the meantime, I've been dabbling in open source. So I started building what, you know, I don't know if you remember uh, blogengine.net, which was uh, my first .NET open source project or open source project in general. Um, and it became the biggest block platform on the .NET framework. You know, there was uh, there was like WordPress, which was still kind of small at the time, 2006, I think uh, 2005, 2006. Uh, and so anyway, so blockengine.net became this kind of big thing. 
and that led me to become a Microsoft MVP. And I joined uh, at the MVP summit over in, in uh, Redmond one year and got to talk to uh, someone on the ASP.NET team who happened to be, uh, you know, he was a manager, a program, he was a manager of a PM team, a program management team. And uh, it didn't take long for him to reach back out to me on Twitter and ask, hey, there's a position. <laughs> uh, do you know anyone? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know, I know someone. And, uh, you know, so I, uh, I applied to that like late August, 2010. And by the end of August contract was signed. I had quit my job. Um, it had to be, you know, at the end of the month, because I think I had at that time I had a contract that said I had a running month plus three month, uh, if I wanted to resign. And so I had to like cut ties very quickly. Uh, otherwise this would take forever for me to, to, uh, to join the Microsoft Visual Studio team, ASP.NET team. So anyway, that all happened. And, uh, I got the visa on my birthday that year and I started, uh, working at Microsoft in Redmond. I had relocated to the States. Uh, from Denmark, where I was from originally, and um, and uh, by, by November fourth or something like that, two thousand ten, and I joined the ASP.NET team on the Visual Studio side of things. So all the tooling for ASP.NET and Visual Studio, I became the PM. Slowly became the PM for most of it, like all the editors, like HTML, CSS, and so on, uh, plus a bunch of other features. And so uh, I was I was very involved in Visual Studio at that time. Um, from the web perspective. And I've been using Visual Studio professionally for like a decade at that point. And so it was really a fantastic experience to be on the other side of Visual Studio, being able to define the features I wanted to use myself as a web developer. I still consider myself a web developer, even though I don't get to you know, do so much web anymore. But uh, that's still where uh, my heart is. But as part of that, that was extensions. Like it would be cool if I always had this thing. Like it would be cool if I had that feature. Well, instead of specking it out in like a document and talking to the engineering team about, hey, when can you schedule this? What if I just prototyped it? What if I just build it? And so I started building extensions. And, you know, one became two, became three. And over the years, it became a lot of different extensions. And they all came from this idea of it would be cool if. And so I, I moved eventually from the ASP.NET team to the Visual Studio extensibility team. And, um, and that was largely because I just, I kind of became the extension guy in Visual Studio, right, in, in, within the team. And I kind of knew all the different APIs and I knew a lot of, of the community around extensibility and so on. And so it was a natural fit for me. And it's like, let me just try something new. I think that would be, that would be fun to try. And so I did and did that for years and it was super fun. And, and um, the last couple of years, I've been in a more general role on the Visual Studio team uh, with... Um, I call myself like the junk drawer of Visual Studio. <laughs> like I, I do all sorts of things here and there, little things, big things, but but very spread out across everything that happens in Visual Studio. Uh, some some areas more than others, but um, it's hard to say that I, I focus on a specific area, even though I I, I am technically the owner of uh, the developer community, the, the the customer outreach program we have for for users to file bugs and and suggest new features for Visual Studio, as well as other sort of customer facing. Um, uh, things such as running our blogs, our YouTube channels, and all this sort of stuff. Um, but a lot of the feature work that goes on uh, happens, th you know, throughout all all sorts of features in Visual Studio. You started out very heavily invested in the the website, and and uh, you know, 
your transition, you know, to the frame framework side, and it sounded like you got to participate in the web side of that framework and, uh, and now, but now you're shipping, you know, or working on visual studio and, and why not, do you miss the web or like what, what, uh, is there, is there a big difference between, uh, do you, do you find, do you like one side or the other? I, I do miss the web a lot. I miss the speed of the web, of the, the technology and the, how fast the browsers evolve. I mean, back in the day, you know, <clears throat> browsers were a headache and all the new features coming out, you know, back when we talked about HTML5 and CSS3 and, oh, can we use border radius now or do I have to use my own rounded corners using little GIFs? It, you know, um, you remember that? That was just awful, awful time, right? And, and Internet Explorer 9 came out finally and now we could do rounded corners and all this sort of stuff. But what about legacy and when can we cut tie? When don't we have to support Internet Explorer 8 and below? Right, that became the next question. And then it became, when can we get rid of supporting Internet Explorer 9 and so on? And I feel like now that everyone is on Chromium, like Edge, and I guess Firefox is, is pretty far ahead on their own, but all the major browsers now are like advancing at, at incredible speed together. And uh, and so I miss that. I, I miss that, the fast-paced uh, pace thing and and with the stability that we have now that we didn't have back then um the web is really a platform um i mean it's, it's it's really fantastic you can do everything with web and i i wish i could do everything with web uh but uh um i, I, I miss it yeah and and uh you nowadays we have like you know rapid deployments and and you know continuously continuous development and all that how do you bring that into something like visual studios is there is there a way for that yeah, that's that's a good question because that that is one of the, the the best things about web is the deployment model. It's absolutely phenomenal, right? Whether you use FTP or you use GitHub Actions or whatever you use of mechanism to deploy your site like continuously, it's super easy. It's just move you know moving files. You know, I think um, from Visual Studio's perspective, a lot of things have happened over the years as well. It used to be that we had. Uh, we had one big Visual Studio release, Visual Studio 2008, right? And then there would be a Service Pack 1, like a year later, and then maybe a Service Pack 2. And then it would be Visual Studio 2010, followed by Service Pack 1, Service Pack 2, and so on. And so that that was changed to become a more continuously updated cycle where we today basically have, like with Visual Studio 2017, we have nine minor releases. They're not service pack. We just call them minor releases, right? Updates, if you will. Uh, with 2019, we have 11. And with 2022, well, we don't even have a, a first, <laughs> the first one yet. So who knows how many uh, updates we'll have to that one. But but it's, quite a, it's kind of a lot. So we changed that model, which is way more agile. We can react to customer issues, blocking problems, and so on. Uh, much faster than ever before. And so it, even though it's not sort of the speed of the web, it's pretty darn close, right? We can actually turn things around really quickly. And we do. The funny thing is, for each of those, let's say those 11 updates we have for Visual Studio 2019, each of those updates might have an additional, let's say five updates. I don't actually know what the number is in, on average, but let's just say it's five. And that's because we, we released an update, but there could be small bugs that we need to fix immediately. Not in, in the update, but things that we just missed or things that were super important that wasn't reported till kind of late or something like that. And so we actually service our updates. So we might have five service updates. And for the long-term supported 
versions uh, of these updates. So it's not all of the updates th themselves that are long-term supported LTS releases, only like every three or four or something like that. But um, we will service them for much longer. So you'll see much, many more updates coming into them. And uh, so like in any given month, we, we have, I don't know, we, we must have at least like two or three updates going out of Visual Studio. So it, it's quite impressive, say. right? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I reboot my computer probably once a week and and restart Visual Studio on on, on that cadence. And it seems like every time I, I load up Visual Studio, there is a new update of some of some form or fashion. Uh, but it, it, I know that the the Visual Studio team has continued working on not just the the incremental releases and the patches and, and the bug fixes, but also new important functionality, including a new release that that's already uh, starting to get some traction in in release candidates and previews. Is that correct? Yeah, Visual Studio 2022 was announced, uh, I think, in April with the first bit, bits dropping in June, like the first preview. And this was like pretty significant because that was the first time Visual Studio uh, went 64-bit, all of Visual Studio. And so um, so that was a huge thing. And that was a, a that was a the very large effort. Like people have always been asking like and, and, you know, always thought that Visual Studio was like crazy for not being 64-bit. Because everyone else is 64-bit. Well, not everyone else is as huge as Visual Studio. So let's let's just let's 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 agree on that. Like it is the world's largest WPF application, and it's just one of the, the in general one of the largest applications in the world, with a lot of different pieces. And so moving everything to 64-bit is way more complicated than one might think. It's not just, oh, let's just compile against 64-bit like we do in, in .NET. Oh, just move the target to 64-bit instead of x86, you know? That's not necessarily how it works for every application, and it's especially not some something as complex as Visual Studio with so much history, right? There's there's code in Visual Studio that's pretty old. That's just There's no reason to change because it worked, right? And so it, just, it has some of those things. So what do we do in those cases? Well, we have to either replace them or renew them or go back and you know into that native code base that it might be and and update it and um and on top of all that we have the extensibility model so are we going to break all extensions it turned out that we had to because there was actually some interfaces and this is all p invoke stuff right so this is old no sorry not p invoke um interrupt stuff like com interrupt and so in some of these contracts and some of these interfaces, they were actually kind of invalid, even though in x86, so that when you move them to a 64-bit, they, they, we couldn't just move them to 64-bit without making breaking changes because stuff like enum values or whatever, they weren't laid out correctly with their numbers. So they, there was a big collisions or something like that in the memory space. And, and, um, and so we had to basically redo a bunch of the... Uh, um, private interrupt assembly interfaces, and that unfortunately had to we had to break backwards compatibility. So it was a huge effort to figure out exactly which ones had to be upgraded, were the ways we could do it without updating them that would still work, be backwards compatible, and so on. And so it, it was a huge, huge effort. It took uh, years, um, but it, but it's a milestone release, right? Because of that, so it's very, very fantastic, and it's a, a great way into the future now. So that that's why there's really no rhyme or reason as to what the the next name of Visual Studio is. It's going to be whatever year we happen to to be coinciding with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how so, that's how it goes. I think our our general 
I'm, I'm not actually sure, but I think there's, uh, I heard one time, and there was someone guessing, I believe, that if you release a product that has a year in its name, if you release it in the last quarter of the year, you, you give it the year of the next year, right? So it's always uh, so that it doesn't seem too old when you release it. <laughs> it doesn't get old too quickly. I don't know if Visual Studio will do that uh, or if it has done that in the past, but uh, it seems reasonable. I don't know. I, 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 I tend to like the years because it's a, it's a way of automatically expiring a product sort of and and you know like which one is is greater than the other one you know if it was like visual studio polecat i mean who, who knows yeah that's true so in in addition to 64-bit uh there's also a number of new features that we can look forward to right it, like i know there's a, a lot of talk about hot reload is is the new fanciness hot reload is is one aspect that's super exciting right because um just imagine the productivity gain you have that you don't that you're gonna get by not having to restart your debugging session or to you know rerun your app to see if that color change came through the way you thought it did. Uh, so it doesn't matter what what app it is. Any .NET app is uh, gonna support hot reload. The idea is, let's say you you do web, you know ASP.NET, and you 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 follow along in the browser, right? So you're going to make a code change and you're going to check the browser. So the, the normal workflow is, okay, make your code change and then you alt tap to the browser and hit F5, right? Or if you have a different monitor, you, you kind of click over there and hit F5. But now as you make the change in CSS or whatever and save the file, the browser automatically updates and shows you that change. So that feedback loop becomes so much tighter. And with web, it was always the easiest of the feedback loops, right? That was always the quickest. The one that took the longest was actually something like, let's say a console app or a Windows Forms app or something like that, where you had to rerun, the, you had to stop the debugging session or whatever, or close the app, you know, and then you hit control F5 to, to run it again or F5 to attach the debugger. And then you had to like browse or, you know, navigate in your app to get to that point where you could see the thing that you made a change for. And so now you just make the change and the running app just updates right there. And so that's a huge thing. And it even works with games. Imagine that. Like imagine you build like a game, full screen game running, you know, 60 frames per second or whatever. And you just make a little change and you see that immediately, especially with a game, right? Imagine you had to like go through gameplay to actually see the result of your stuff. So um, huge, 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 what we call inner loop uh, performance improvement there. And it's just getting better and better. So in the beginning, it was just for some of the .NET features, but now it's for like C++, CMake stuff. Uh, and it's coming to all of the .NET uh, project types. Okay, that, that sort of answers the question that I had because I was going to ask, is it is it just doing like .NET Watch under the covers? But if it's for C++, then it's not doing .NET Watch. It's no, it's much deeper integration. Yeah, it's a much deeper integration. And and um, uh, I think it's a little bit different depending on what you're doing, what the app is doing. Uh, I think there's different mechanisms at play sometimes. You know, the web is different because you have to reload a browser. So in order, or not to reload a browser necessarily, but in terms of, of style changes, you have to like re redo or repaint in the browser. So redo the CSS without reloading. And so for a CSS change to go through, that mechanism is different 
than, let's say, uh, your Blazor app that has to reload the uh, WebAssembly code or something like that, right? Those are two separate mechanisms. I'm sure that underneath there's a lot of the same stuff as well, uh, but the delivery mechanisms have to just be different just based on the nature of the different app types. Is hot reload just going to be enabled by default when I hit the play button? Or is is there a way for me to run the app in the old traditional style where I'd have to stop the app and and uh, and make changes? Yeah, it's it's an opt-in thing. So there's a button. There's a hot reload button. You basically now have a little button next to the run button up on your standard toolbar. That's the uh, hot reload button. So uh, by default, you click that button to have that reload happen. For web, I don't think you have to do that. For CSS changes, that just happens automatically. Um, but for other things, because you, sometimes you want to not just see one thing, you want to make multiple changes to multiple files and then just click that little sort of uh, hot reload button that then, okay, refreshes your, your running app, right? So uh, so that's how that works. So no, no, no you, you, it's, everything is the same. Your muscle memory does not change at all whatsoever. Um, so uh, for the CSS you had mentioned, um, one of my favorite extensions is the web compiler extension because I can compile my SAS uh, like directly to, to CSS. Will this hot reload also work for that? Does it trigger the web compiler when I make a change to the SCSS? Is that tied in any any way? You know, uh, I'm not sure. It, it No, it's not tied into web compiler. Um, but whether or not it's tied into file change on disk, which is what happens here, or if it's only on typing. So... Um, that that is the real question. Um, I, I'm not sure that is the case. It could be. Um, it should also look for file changes, but whether or not it is, um, I'll have to get back to you on that. Web compiler is yours, right? It is. Uh, okay. It is. It's it's not one of the ones I'm bringing forth to Visual Studio 2022. That's the current plan. Someone else is taking it and and releasing it in their name. That's the beauty of open source. Uh, so don't worry, you're not lost. You still have the ability to to use it if you want to. But uh, it's one of those things where I thought it was great at the time. This is getting old now. Right? We've been using Web Compiler for like five years or so, more. Yeah, I've been using it for a while. It was in, uh, I forget the name of the the suite that it was in. It was in like a Power yeah, Web Essentials and then it got broken out and I was like, what happened to it? I had to go find it again. Uh, but there wasn't anything else readily available to convert the SAS files into CSS files and I needed it. So that's, that's what I used. Yeah, no, I, there's some, there's some, some, some solutions out there now. Um, my favorite, if you're using .NET Core is to use the Liger Shark web optimizer <clears throat> because then you get, um, then you get not, not only SAS compilation, but you get minification and all sorts of other features uh, to optimize your entire pipeline of, of static assets. So whether it be JavaScript or CSS or SAS or less or whatever, you, it just kind of plugs into a pipeline model. And so you can do all sorts of manipulations and um, and greatly optimize your output. So that's, that's kind of why I don't want to bring it forward because I no longer think it's the best solution. Um, and I'm not using it myself. So if I'm not using it myself, I don't feel like I can provide the best maintenance of it. And so I'm glad someone else has taken it over, but... I will have to check out that alternative. I just, you know, once I found it, I was like, that's it. It works. <laughs> no, it is one of those sort of one click just kind of works type of thing. That's why that's why it was such a great solution. And like hundreds of thousands of, of installs later, right? It, um, it kind of proved that it was. And I think the, the community is 
being has been pretty supportive of understanding that the need for breaking changes in recent years. I know that uh, I can't remember if it was Visual Studio 2017 or 2019 did some some uh, optimizations and flagging of uh, extensions that didn't necessarily play nice on startup. And, uh, you know, there, there are certain extensions that I use and, and want to make sure that uh, are going to be readily available when when we finally switch over to 2022 uh, for the daily run. Uh, things like um, ReSharper and InCrunch. So what are those breaking changes that the extension makers and builders need to be aware of? Yeah, that's a great question. So it, it was in 2019 the thing you're mentioning. Um, and, and what we, so maybe let's, let's do a little history before I answer the question. So the, what we asked for in 2019 was we had discovered that when Visual Studio starts up, a lot of the time that goes on before Visual Studio is up and we can start interacting with it, it's actually spent loading extensions. And a bunch of these extensions, they, they can decide when they need to be loaded and what the work they do in their initialization phase. And so we discovered that a lot of them actually do a lot of work they don't have to uh, when not even a project is loaded. Like, why, why do they self-load? Why do they auto-load themselves when there's absolutely no need to? Um, and so we changed the way that extensions are loaded, and then we say, hey, they're always loaded last. So now Visual Studio starts up, if you had clicked on an SLN file, like a solution file, or used the Windows jump lists to just open a, a solution directly, to, and that's how you open Visual Studio, then the extension won't load till after the solution is loaded. So now there's a delay, right? And so assumptions that your extension might have, which was, oh, uh, subscribe to an event that says solution opened. Well, when the solution is open, your extension is not loaded to be able to listen to that event. So all of a sudden, we would break your functionality there. And so instead, what you had to do is you had to say, when I'm loaded, I'm going to um, subscribe to that event. And then I'm also going to just check, is there a solution open right now as part of my initialization step? And if it is, go ahead and do the thing that my extension will do, right? And so that was a kind of a breaking change. And we knew this way in advance. And the first email went out 18 months before this was happening, before the first release of 2019, uh, the GA release. And so we actually got people on board. We had blog posts. We had a how-to and how to, you know, tutorials on how to, to do it right. And all the samples that we had as well. So we had, I think, a record over 1,000 extensions ready and in the marketplace ready for people to use by the time uh, 2019 GA'd. Uh, and it was was it March 4, 2019? Do I remember right? I think it was. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so that that was just phenomenal, right? So it it proves that with you know, and people understand, you know, we want Visual Studio to be as fast as possible. So so the extenders understood that it made sense. Like, like to your point, like hey, people are accepting these breaking changes. Yes, if they see there's a benefit to it, and here it was kind of obvious, right? Uh, okay, so now fast forward to 2022. This is a different situation because we are making an infrastructure change in the Visual Studio Code by making it 64-bit. One where we where the, we could not, even if we wanted to, make it backwards compatible. And then because we, we knew we were going to break back compatible on some of those interfaces, extensibility interfaces, 
we also knew that we we now had a chance to modernize certain things. If we were going to break things anyway, we might as well make other improvements too, right? So we went ahead and did that. And, uh, you know, just the shift to 64-bit, people fully understand. The extenders fully understand why we were doing that and that it's been an ask that's, you know, it's feature request that's over 10 years old, right? Everyone understands why this is a good idea and they're willing to accept uh, that hit that comes along with it. And so I think they're, they're comparable in the way that as long as there are, as long as the reason makes sense to the extenders and the users, there's really no pushback. Uh, our job on the Visual Studio team is to make it as easy as possible though, so that we can have a record-breaking number of extensions ready by the time we launch the GA release, right? And um, and this time around, it's it, it, it a little bit more potentially is needed by the extenders. So whether or not we're going to have a thousand, I, I'm not sure this time around. But we have all the videos, we have all the articles, we have the documentation, the tutorials, and so on on how to make it possible. So uh, it's just a matter of time. So for NCrunch and Resharper, I'm sure they're going to be ready. Uh, if not on day one, like soon after. Like that's that's kind of following the patterns from from previous years. Um, and remember, just you know, write write your extension author. If they don't have the extent their extensions, your favorite extensions ready uh, today in the preview, write them and say, hey, get on it. You know, or if they're open source, open an issue with them, or vote on an existing one, or send them a pull request or something. Right. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that Resharper will will be there day one. InCrunch has has been a little slow to to in, address. InCrunch already has a preview, I think. Do they really? Okay. Well, historically, they've been a little slow. I think maybe Remco has been busy actually. At yeah, the you day say job. they. It's it's <laughs> one guy. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I and and I can I can be understanding of that. So I appreciate that. Well, I know that uh, for instance, InCrunch they. They Remco is spending Remco, the author and owner and maintainer of Encrunch. He ha, he he spends a, a significant amount of time, um, basically porting his stuff every time we have breaking changes. So um, there's some there's some extensions depending on what APIs you use that are harder hit by this than others. So every time we do something that breaks backwards compatibility, some are hit harder than others. And oftentimes it's the same <laughs> extensions that are hit hard. Uh, and so his unfortunately is one of those that are kind of always hit hard. And so we got to, we got to cut him a little slack. Um, I, he's an old colleague of mine. So I, I, I know what he's been going through. He's a great guy. And uh, yeah, I didn't know it was in preview that that's good to know. Yeah. Next time you see him, tell him that, that we all love that extension. Like, changed changed our lives and and fork out our own money out of pocket without a second yeah. thought yeah that was the first extension i ever saw being being built uh i was at like this one of these startups where he was uh he was a contractor at the, i was a full-time employee he was a contractor and he 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 said hey come over i want to show you something and he had on the screen he was showing some like live unit testing stuff and i'm like I didn't quite get what it was and I didn't know a Visual Studio extensibility model or anything like that. So I wasn't as impressed as I would have been today had I known what I know today. But so he started, this is like 13 years ago or something like that. He's been going strong for a long time and it all, it, it started as a passion project is my understanding. Yeah. Uh, so on, on speaking of extensions, which we've been doing for a little bit and, and ReSharper, is Visual Studio going to stop telling me to uninstall ReSharper? What is it saying? <laughs> every every single day, it's like 
there's something slowing down your Visual Studio. You should turn it off. <laughs> and it's it's resharper every day. So that that is so the the previous uh, question from John was like about the the breaking change we did in Visual Studio 2019 about not about speeding things up on solution load. That is exactly what what this is. So when you when extension wants to load up uh, or takes too much time in its initialization phase. Visual Studio is catching that and giving you sort of that yellow bar that says, hey, something bad is happening. You can put an exception in so you don't ever see it again. How? I keep telling it to go away and it always comes back. I forget how it is. Maybe it's if you go to help and then Visual Studio Performance uh, Manager or something. I forget how, where it is. But no, you, you can you can say, don't, don't, uh, don't do this again. Yeah, I but, told it to but, go away months ago and I haven't seen it again. So I, every day I keep telling it to go away. It just comes back. I gave up. But the so so if you didn't know that was Resharper, you would think it was Visual Studio being slow, right? So we get we got all these like for years and years we got so much heat for being slow, and then we learned that hey extensions are actually one of the main causes of that. And so it's like okay, let the user know it's an extension, so at least they know, and so they can take action. They can uh, go raise an issue where it should be and and get a fix in for those things, right? It's like uh, you know, call your congressperson type of thing. So go to the, go to the source and and have them put pressure on the right place. So uh, one one of the things uh, that I use Visual Studio Code for is finding things in 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 my files. I've heard that there's going to be some new changes to that experience, uh, and I was curious, you know, if you could talk about those a little bit. Yeah, yeah. In Visual Studio 2022 preview. Four, the latest one that just came out, I believe it's preview four. Um, finding files <clears throat> is now a lot faster again. So we completely redid finding files in an update to Visual Studio 2019, like maybe a year ago, and then continuously improved it. And now it's come been redesigned again, like certain aspects of it uh, under the hood to make it, I think, like four times faster in certain scenarios. So. A significant performance boost is uh, is now in preview, but but will be there for the 2022 official launch whenever that happens. Um, and there's some other interesting things about um, find in files or, or find and replace. In that uh, we look, we are playing around with some IntelliCode features, so machine learning uh, for discovering how to um, find patterns using regular expressions. So. You're all professionals, right? So when you want to find and replace somewhere, I'm sure you do this all the time. You just like go, you know, control H to get your find and replace. And you start typing your regular expression to find all the instances of the thing that you want so that you can much easier. <laughs> right? That's that's what you all do, I'm sure. And then you have another problem because you got your regular expression wrong. Yeah. So no, of course, no one does this. This is insane, right? You, if you have a very specialized task, then task, then maybe. So what we're doing now is like, <clears throat> if you type in what you're searching for, we we have like we 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 put we throw our AI engine at it, our IntelliCode engine, to see whether or not there are, it it you could write that as a regular expression that would then match multiple places in your file that semantically follows the same. Like if it's a method name or method call, are there other places where there's method names that are similar that can be regexified? For instance, and so it gives you a little light bulb up there by the find and replace. And if you click that, it will automatically fill in your the regular write the regular expression for you based on. Uh, it will give you previews so you can see if it hits the things that you 
uh, would assume it would hit. So we're looking at those sort of type of AI solutions on top of it. So not only is it faster, we're also going to make it a hell of a lot smarter. And so uh, exactly when that lands, if that's going to continue to be in like a preview stage uh, or it's going to going to be kind of done by by GA, uh, I, I'm not sure, but uh, it's pretty fantastic. Just just to clarify, I apparently know nothing about Visual Studio anymore. <laughs> uh, you can write a regular expression in find and replace in 2019 and it will use it for search. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you can also do? You can write it in 2010. Oh, yeah, I, I, I know nothing about <laughs> yeah, Visual Studio anymore. <laughs> Clayton spent the last several years in, in JavaScript land, and uh, so we'll, we'll have to forgive him. Well, it's it's one of it's just one of those features that are um, it's really rare that you have the need to do regular expression, and so you don't really ever look for it. So it's like you've, or if you've, you remember how to write a regular expression too. That well, well, but but now because I know I can, I'm just going to do it. Just because. <laughs> and now he's going to lose a week of productivity. <laughs> he's messed everything up. <laughs> so wh- what else is, is, what else can we look forward to coming in Visual Studio 2022? And, and do we have a date for GA yet? We do not have a date for GA. Uh, we just released uh, preview four. I believe there will be other previews after this. So um, we do not have an official date yet. Um. That's been announced. So, <laughs> the uh, uh, there there is actually a bunch of features. Uh, it is not just 2019 with updated logo and splash screen. Like you know, it, there's more to it, a lot more. So we already talked about 64 bit. We talked about hot reload. I think there's too many things for me to go through. Uh, so so maybe let's see here. We have there's some pushes in different areas. So one is like cross platform stuff. Uh, so this is always interesting if you're like a .NET developer, obviously .NET Core, right? Or .NET 5, rather, these days. Um, or 6, because Visual Studio 2022 will have full support for .NET 6. Uh, so uh, cross-platform, wouldn't it be nice if you could run your unit test on Linux, even though you're sitting in Windows? Right, That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> that would be extremely cool that you could do that. And guess what? You can. Right. So, uh, Or what if you want to debug in Linux? In .NET, or if you have a CMake project, like in C project, and you wanna, you wanna basically execute and and run your debugging session on a Linux instance running on your machine, right? Using the Windows subsystem for Linux. Uh, so this is this is extremely fantastic. Uh, the fact that we can do that instead of waiting for like a CI build or something like that, that we can do this up front. That's just that's just mind blowing because it's very common. We we learned that it's actually very common that you're using Visual Studio on Windows because uh, that's where Visual Studio runs, <laughs> uh, but you're actually targeting Linux because your your web app or whatever is going to run on a Linux server. That's a very common scenario. So it would be really really fantastic if you could also then run your local unit tests on that same platform, right? And so whatever you can you can throw at WSL two like Windows Subsystem for Linux, you can code against. So whether it's Ubuntu, Debian, you know whatever. Does does that include like uh, multi multi casting the tests, like run them in Windows and Linux, like at the same time? Y- yeah, or you know, in the in a in a single run, whether it's simultaneously or not. I, th- I believe it's coming. I think right now you just select like which environment do you want to run it on, uh, and you can define your own environments and multiple of them. Uh, but the like that's that's what's on my list. When I first saw it, I'm like, I want it to run both in one run. 
And uh, and so, yeah, I'm not alone as I can. <laughs> you, you think that it's a good idea too. And a lot of people think that. So I think it's coming. Uh, but we got to start one place. And then eventually also, like I want live unit testing. So once I make a change to my code, tell me if it breaks on Linux. Just just hire just hire Remco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a... Uh, yeah, he's having a good time down there in New New Zealand. I'm sure he enjoys he enjoys his his uh, independent life. I think. So we've talked a lot about Visual Studio uh, uh, 2022, um, and maybe you, we could talk about like where people could get it to try out the previews and take a look at it. Uh, but we've also mentioned Visual Studio extensions. Is there any resources that you might point people to who are looking to, you know, start? You know, they have an idea of what if, just like you mentioned, and they can start um, jumping into, uh, you know, building out their own Visual Studio extension. What, where, what kind of resources would you point people to? So you want to download Visual Studio, get on with the preview and try it out. Go to visualstudio.com. That's, that's where we have all the information for and download links and all this sort of stuff from Visual Studio. So definitely go check out the latest uh, preview of Visual Studio 2022. If you want to build an extension or you have in the past, or maybe you've even tried it in the past and thought, oh my Lord, this is so difficult. I'm going to give up. And you rage quit and you slam the door, right? <laughs> and you have never looked at it again because it sucked. You know, you, you're not alone, by the way. That's a very common thing. <laughs> uh, uh, there's good news for you. And that is that Visual Studio Extensibility has never been easier. There's a community project that we've been running for a while now that is fen- phenomenal. So the best way to get started is to go to v6, V-S-I-X, v6, cookbook.com. v6, cookbook.com. So v- V-S-I-X, that's the, uh, that stands for Visual Studio IDE extension or extensibility. And it's also the file extension of an extension, like a v6 file. So v6, cookbook.com. Go there. There are some videos. There's a bunch of tutorials and it shows you how to do it. There's an extension you install. It's actually an extension pack that gives you a bunch of tooling that is going to blow you away just how easy this has gotten. It comes with its own API for Visual Studio. It actually has an API wrapper around sort of that complex, old, com interrupt um, API that, you know, that is Visual Studio and makes it super easy, smooth, nice. uh, And that toolkit, uh, can be used for extensions targeting Visual Studio 2015 and newer. And it actually makes it easier to have an extension that supports multiple versions because there's, there's uh, you know, backwards compatibility workarounds built into it. So you don't have to know when you have to take different code paths based on a uh, version of Visual Studio. The toolkit does that for you. So uh, v6cookbook.com for sure. That's super nice. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those maybe looking to level up their own careers? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it would be very much easy to tell you what uh, have not helped me in my career. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long list. But, um, you know, I think follow, follow it's, it's a cliche, but it's something like follow your, pa- your passion. Um, and um, I like... I'll actually, I will, I will not do you an original. I will give you one that was given to me when I started at Microsoft uh, by Scott Hanselman. He's, he told me I did something that broke <laughs> a lot of stuff. And, uh, it, and, you know, I felt really bad about it. And he, he basically just told me, Hey, if you don't, you know, and my manager got kind of upset with me, right? 
And he said, if you don't piss off your manager once or twice a year, you're not doing it. You're not pushing hard enough. And I think that there's, you know, be careful. Your mileage may <laughs> vary here, but the idea is basically just go ahead. If you really believe that something is going to work, go ahead, try it out. Um, you know, full steam ahead. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. For myself, that's been specifically the case many, many, many times where I just couldn't articulate why I thought it was a good idea or people just higher up in management or whatever disagreed with me. And I just, you know, and I couldn't get through and say, hey, I want to do this. So I just went ahead and did it anyway. And oftentimes that has been a really, really good thing. So in my case, it's been through making extensions. I proved them wrong, right? And show, hey, this is how it works. We can do this. And eventually that's going to be built into Visual Studio and it, it became a success and all this sort of stuff. So that was that was then and the so the outlet for me for me to to push through with my ideas and not listen to anyone was actually extension. So I got lucky that I had a venue for that. Uh, but find your venue if you can and so that you, know, you can, you know, plow ahead. Don't look back and um, fo- follow your passion. So when annual review time comes around, we'll just say, Mads told me <laughs> well, <laughs> that I could piss you off once or twice a year and we're good. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it might not be the fastest way to the promotion, but, uh, you know, promotions are not everything, right? You also want to have a good time. Yeah. It is your life, right? You don't, you want to spend half your waking life chasing a promotion, which is just a new business card. So where, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Well, I got two places. Um, github.com slash Mads Christensen. That's the, check out what I'm coding on. And uh, I, I think I have almost 300 uh, projects up there and new ones coming all the time. Uh, so there's always something interesting, something new. And then on Twitter, uh, the easiest way to reach out, talk to me, uh, at M Christensen. All right, Mads, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Mads is a principal program manager on the Visual Studio team and has published over 150 free Visual Studio extensions. He blogs about anything related to Visual Studio and extensibility and is a home automation enthusiast. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 